You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. In 1946, 13-year-old Charlie Wilson's dog wandered into his neighbor's yard one too many times, and the neighbor, Charles Hazard, dealt with the problem by feeding the dog some food laced with glass, killing the dog. A couple of years later, Wilson got his revenge because Hazard was a town councillor who was running for re-election, and Wilson had earned his driver's license and a pickup truck and started ferrying voters to the voting station. In total, he ferried 96 voters, representing about 25% of the total vote in the small town, to the polling station. And as they got out of his truck each time, he told them what Hazard had done to his dog. Hazard lost his seat by 16 votes. This early success in politics sparked Wilson's interest in politics, and he became a senator in the state of Texas at the age of 27 and started to use his influence in politics to arm the Afghani rebels against uh, the Soviets in their fight in the 1980s, a story that's told in the movie Charlie Wilson's War. And then in 2001, a radical faction of that same Afghan rebel group flew hijacked jets into the World Trade Center in New York, sending shockwaves around the world. Chaos theorists would say this is an example of what is known as the butterfly effect, a seemingly insignificant act, a dog trespassing on a neighbor's yard, can have great impact the worst disaster, terrorist disaster in the United States. This effect was first named by mathematician and meteorologist Edward Norton Lorenz, who posited and proved through math and weather science that the exact time of formation and exact path of a tornado could be influenced by something as insignificant as the flap of a butterfly's wings weeks earlier, a theory that was summed up in the title of his 1972 lecture, Does the Flap of a Butterfly's Wings in Brazil Set Off a Tornado in Texas? This idea that insignificant acts can have great impact has been around for a long time. As early as 1800, Johann Gottlieb Fichte said this, you could not remove a single grain of sand from its place without thereby changing something throughout all parts of the immeasurable whole. And these parables in Luke seem to support this theory, that a seemingly insignificant seed can have great impact, that a little leaven totally transforms a ton of flour. A seemingly small act can have great impact. But Jesus isn't just making general observations about life. He's giving us insight into the character of his kingdom. Notice, the kingdom of heaven is like this. If you go back to Matthew's gospel where this parable is told, it it comes in the context of a few different stories, including the parable of the seed and the soil. Some seed falls on the path and birds come and eat that seed. Some seeds fall on shallow soil and they sprout up, but they have no roots, and so the sun withers them before they can bear any 
harvest. Some seed falls among thorns and uh, is choked out by the, the surrounding weeds and thistles and the competing vegetation. And some seed falls on good soil and it grows up to produce a harvest. And then immediately in that context, Jesus tells another story about sowing some seed in the parable of the wheat and the weeds where a farmer plants some seed and it's good seed and it falls on good soil, but an enemy sneaks in at night and starts to plant some weeds in among the good seed. And so maybe Jesus is telling this story because he anticipates the question the disciples have. What chance then does the kingdom of heaven really have? Only one quarter of the seed that we spread takes root, and even then the field is corrupted by the enemy. And maybe the disciples were starting to kind of look around like there is just 12 of us, and I'm pretty good, but the rest of you certainly aren't the brightest and the best of society, and we're led by an unknown man from a small town in Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It's too small. It's too insignificant. And this world is so big and the empire is so powerful and the religious establishment is so established and evil is so pervasive. What chance does the kingdom of heaven have? Maybe it's possible that some of us feel the same way today. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus spoke those words, and the kingdom has certainly grown from 12 followers confined to a relatively small, irrelevant region of the world. It's now a global movement that consists of approximately 2.4 billion adherents. But in comparison to the rest of the population, it's still only about a quarter of the world population. And more than that, if we believe the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and we believe the parable of the fishing nets, which happens just after this in Matthew's gospel, we know that even among those 2.4 billion adherents are a significant number of imposters and pretenders. Currently in Canada, it seems like our significance and influence is swiftly shrinking. What, what chance does the kingdom of heaven have in our culture? What difference does Christianity make in our city? What impact can our church, and maybe even more specifically, can I, can my faithfulness have in the face of such crushing cultural coercion? When Jesus gives us three insights, it, into the character of the kingdom to give us confidence to continue. First, he acknowledges that the kingdom's start is small and insignificant. That's obvious, isn't it? I mean, they, again, just had to look around at who was around them, but Jesus isn't embarrassed by this. Jesus doesn't try to hide it. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He emphasizes the size of the current state of the kingdom, but maybe he even had one in his hand, just like I have here in this little container. They're so small, they're hard to get out of this little container. There we go. He's emphasizing the size of the seed and the insignificant start. You're, most of you are just going to have to trust that I even have a seed in my hand because you can't see it except me. Nope, not even on the side screens. It's there, all right? It's so small. The kingdom of heaven, he continues, is like a little yeast in three measures of flour. 
And here he's emphasizing the insignificance of the kingdom. He talks about three measures of flour. What, what does that mean? Like three cups of flour? No, it's a, it's a measure that was used in that period of time. And I have a representation here. I think I have Cohen in the back ready to help me out with this. Cohen, are you there? I'll be right back. It's going to look really good on the live stream. Cohen's going to wonder where his flower went. <laughs> it's a significant amount of flour, isn't it? It's about 60 pounds. And it says that she took a little leaven, and it's just a little bit. It's not, oh, no, I have it in here. That's not Cohen's fault. Right here. It's not a lot of yeast compared to the amount of flour that you need. What effect can such a small and insignificant movement have compared to the pervasive powers of politics and religion, culture, and evil? The kingdom's start is small and insignificant. The kingdom's growth is subtle and slow. The parable says that the woman hid some yeast in the flour. I don't think it means that she was running from the yeast police and was like, where should I put this? I know. Which would be brilliant because they would never get it back, right? But I think it's probably chosen by Jesus to emphasize the hidden nature of the kingdom. The seed is buried, it's planted in the soil. The yeast is hidden in the dough, and nothing seems to happen. I've baked very few loaves of bread in my life, like maybe four. But I know that if you sit and watch dough rise, you won't really see anything happen, right? You've got to look at it over time. Still hasn't grown. N.T. Wright says this, the parables are all about waiting, and waiting is what we find difficult. The birds wait for the tiny mustard seed to grow into a large shrub. The woman baking bread must wait for the leaven to spread its way through the entire dough until the whole loaf is mysteriously leavened. And that's what God's kingdom is like. Last week, Pastor Dave preached for us, and I've got to say, uh, sermon that blessed me, and if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to his sermon yet, I really encourage you to look it up on our YouTube channel and take some time to, to listen to what he said and what he taught us about the kingdom. One of the things that he wrote down, he asked us to write down was, deeds that glorify the Father germinate in the soil of kingdom character. What he didn't say, what was maybe implied, but he didn't make it explicit, was that takes time. If the seeds are going to germinate in kingdom character, it takes time. And often way more time than we would like. Some of you with teenage kids are saying amen right now. I hear you. More importantly, God hears you as well. The growth is subtle. Still nothing. And it takes time. I saw this in my own life. 
About 10 days ago, I attended a, a in-spirit retreat at the Martha Retreat Center led by Pam Ukrainitz. And as part of the day, she had us do an exercise called a prayer taxonomy where we had to look at the different types of prayer, categorize the different types of prayer that we have prayed in certain seasons of our life. And as I looked at my adult life, most of my life from Bible college onward, there were lots of prayers of disorientation, prayers of lament, prayers of protest. I told you in a sermon a few weeks ago about how Pastor Tim, 25 years ago, prayed some words over me, and I remembered those and wrote them into my prayer taxonomy. Jeremy, you are God's child. He loves you, and he finds delight in you. And as I did my prayer taxonomy, I realized that in the last three to five years, those words, that prayer, has finally taken root in my soul and is now producing fruit in my life. For so many years, I based my identity, my goodness, my righteousness off on my accomplishments, my abilities, and my affirmations and acceptance. And so many years, that's what my identity was based on. So when I couldn't accomplish something and when I came to the end of my ability or when I was faced with disapproval or rejection, it caused me to become disoriented and it was reflected in my prayers and my protests. And yet this whole time, those words, that little prayer was at work leavening my soul. I couldn't see it at any given moment. Tim must have wondered if it had any impact. Did I waste my time driving all the way to SABC to pray those words over Jeremy? But it was gradually shaping me. And it was gradually transforming me to the point where it has become both my hope and my joy. Two weeks ago, I preached my candidating sermon here. And let me just pause here and say thank you to our congregation. Thank you to you for your support, for your questions, for your engagement through this process, through your, for your prayers, for your encouragement. Thank you, especially, uh, maybe especially, but I know a lot of you went out of your way to get here on a Monday evening to vote, and that means a lot to me. And so I say thank you to you from the bottom of my heart. During this process, and as I prepared to preach that Sunday, I was strangely serene. I even started to get nervous on Sunday morning that I wasn't feeling more nervous. And with some distance, a few days distance, and doing this prayer text on me, I realized that the Spirit had finally allowed that little prayer from 25 years ago to leaven my soul to the point that it didn't ultimately matter what happened that Sunday or the following Monday. I was still going to be God's child, and he was still going to love me, and he was still going to take delight in me. Now, one of the things that, I, that brings me the most joy in my ministry is when God allows me to come alongside of what he's doing in someone's life to help them discover their true identity as God's child whom God's, God loves, in whom God takes delight. 
A, a few weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, we passed that blessing to one another. And I know that some of you didn't receive that blessing, maybe because it didn't make it across the aisle, or maybe you weren't here that day. And some of you would like to receive that blessing. And the prayer team will be available after communion during the last couple songs of our service. And they would be more than happy to extend that blessing to you. You can come for prayer for anything, but especially or specifically for that blessing, they would be glad to extend that blessing to you. The kingdom's start is small and insignificant, and its growth is subtle and slow, but its ultimate impact is persistent and significant. The smallest of seeds becomes the largest of garden plants, becomes a tree. Ah, there he is, come on in, Cohen. Oh, you gotta get over that cord. Yeah, there we go. Mustard trees in the Middle East could grow to about 10 feet or more. From something this small to something this tall. And full disclosure, this is not actual mustard seed. And I feel for the sake of intellectual integrity, we should probably label this too. A seemingly insignificant act. A man plants a tiny seed, has great impact, and it becomes a home for all the birds. What's with the birds anyways? Well, Jesus is borrowing imagery that people would have been familiar with from Ezekiel chapter 17, 22 to 23, which is a reference to Israel, which was in exile, and God makes a promise to them that good things are going to happen, and so he says, it, the nation of Israel, will become a majestic cedar, sending forth its branches and producing seed. Birds of every sort will nest in it, finding shelter in the shade of its branches. So Jesus is comparing the prophecy for the nation of Israel to what's going to happen in the kingdom of God. But again, it doesn't answer the question, what's with the birds? And so we need to go to the book of Isaiah to find out. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, God promises this, in that day when the nation comes back from exile, the root of Jesse, there's the plant imagery again, this is the root of Jesse, will stand as a banner for the peoples and the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. And resting place is not a grave as we kind of talk about it euphemistically today. His resting place is the place where he dwells, his home. And so what Isaiah, if we go through Isaiah and we go through Ezekiel and come to Jesus, we understand that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven will become a home for people from all nations. Jesus is saying that what started way back with Abraham you will be a blessing, or all nations will be blessed through you, and continued through the nation of Israel, all families of the earth will be blessed through you, now continues through his disciples, now continues through the church, and will ultimately come to fulfillment where we see a multitude made up of people from every nation, every tribe, every language group, every people group, in God's throne room, in his dwelling place. It starts small, like this. It grows slowly and takes time. Still see nothing. In fact, thousands of years later, it's still not done. But the birds, 
all kinds, people from all nations will make their homes in its branches. Its ultimate impact is significant and it's persistent. Mustard seed we're maybe not as familiar with, but mint some of us are familiar with. And if you plant mint in your garden, it will take over. That's what mustard seed does in the Middle East. Yeast doesn't care if the flower doesn't want to be affected. No, please don't. No, it doesn't matter. It's going to do what yeast does. It permeates the whole batch and totally transforms it. In a similar way, the kingdom of God is going to spread and it is going to change the world and the culture. You might not notice it in the moment, still nothing. But when you compare it now to what it was then, it's persistent and significant. When you look at how the values of the kingdom of heaven have permeated and transformed our culture from then, the time of Jesus, to now, you will have to agree it's persistent and significant. A seemingly insignificant act can have great impact. We, our church, is a microcosm of this. I wonder if the original congregation, the 25 original members gathered in the Lakeview Elementary School gym in 1962 imagined this today. It started small. It grew slowly 60 years ago. And that's, totally, that's just looking at the size of our church. That's totally ignoring the impact that our church has had by God's grace in our community and across our country and across around the globe. And so I wanna give you a moment this morning to just ask the Spirit, how are you working in me in this persistent way? How has the Spirit brought about growth in your life? What seeds has God planted in your life that may be germinating, they may be, it may be hidden right now. Maybe they're starting to sprout and you see some signs. Maybe they're producing fruit. So I'm just going to give you a moment of silence just to listen to the Spirit confirm and affirm these things to you. Lately, I've been wondering what the fruit of the Spirit at work might look like for our church. What signs might we look for in our congregation to recognize that the Spirit is working? And the two words that have come to me, and I submit them to you for your consideration and prayer, are the words rest and joy. I see both of these things in the parable. Even just in the fact that the birds make their homes in the branches. This is where they abide. This is where they dwell. This is where they rest. And yes, Jesus tells parables that indicate that we need to 
put our time and our talent and our treasure to work for the sake of the kingdom. He, he directs us to go and make disciples, and there are reminders through Scripture that we are to, we're created for good works, and we are to work diligently and labor uh, without rest in those things or, or labor intensely in those things, but we're also invited to rest. Jesus tells another story about the kingdom of God. Again, it's agricultural in nature. It's about a farmer scattering seed on his soil. But what's implied in this parable of the mustard seed, plant the seed and let the seed do what it does, is made explicit in the parable in Mark. Mark chapter 4, verse 27, after he plants the seed, night and day, while he's asleep, while the farmer's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows but he does not understand how it happens. The earth produces the crops on its own. Now I'm sure we have some farmers and gardeners in our congregation who would, who would like to have a word with Jesus at this point in time and be like, it's not actually quite how it works, Jesus. But the point is this, right? It's restful. The seed is gonna do what the seed's gonna do. Besides giving us insight into the characteristics of the kingdom, Jesus is also reminding us of our role in its rise. Just plant some seed, hide some yeast, and let it do what it's going to do. It seems relatively restful, doesn't it? Yes, I have a role to play. You have a role to play. Is there a good and healing word that you could say? Is there a good deed that you could do? Is there a blessing that you could extend? Is there some influence that you could exert, however insignificant it might seem? Plant some seed, hide some yeast, and then let God do what God does. Tim didn't know the impact that his prayer was going to have 25 years ago. The 25 members in an elementary school gym didn't know the impact that their church would have 60 years later. Plant some seed, hide some yeast, and let God do what God does. A seemingly insignificant act can have great impact. Along with rest, I also see an invitation to joy in the parable. I'm not a Latin expert. That's a huge understatement. But I wonder if there's a common root between leaven and levity, lightness and laughter. I, I think it's hilarious, at least it's delightful, that something so small, so insignificant, can become something so big. There's joy in planting seeds, isn't there? Let's put this here and see what happens. There's joy in hiding some yeast in some dough. Let's slip this in here and see what happens. I came across a term a few years ago called guerrilla gardening. It's where people plant gardens where gardeners do not have the legal right to cultivate an abandoned lot or that patch of grass between the sidewalk and the curb. There's lots of motivations for doing this, but ultimately it results in an underground beautification project. Doesn't that sound kind of fun? Doesn't that sound joyful? It's kind of like a benevolent prank best of both worlds. This is an invitation. These parables are an invitation. Be involved in benevolent pranks. Where are my middle school and high school students at? This is like, go for it. Do good things, but do it in a sneaky way. Awesome. A seemingly insignificant act can have great impact. 
Plus, I think the second story is just plain funny, right? 27 kilograms of flour. What is a rural woman in a small little village in a hut doing with so much flour? And then she adds some yeast and some other ingredients. I'm not a baker, but I know that part. And she lets it proof. Yeah, I watched the great British baking show. I know that word. And because I watched the Great British Baking Show, I know that it's supposed to approximately double in size. Double in size in her little tiny courtyard. I, I just imagine her like, ooh, I've made a serious miscalculation, right? As it's like filling the space. It's an hilarious amount of dough. It's an abundant amount of dough. It's enough dough to make 100 loaves of bread. What's she doing with 100 loaves of bread? I wonder if she's making them for a feast or a party. Jesus gives us insight into the characteristics of the kingdom, and then he invites us to rest and joy. The first parable ends with a home. The second with a feast. We're going to participate in a tangible way in the feast of the kingdom today by coming to the communion table. And as we come, we come in a posture of rest, because there is nothing left to do. It is finished, Jesus said. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. There's nothing you can do to, to bring to this banquet. It is finished. And so we rest in that. We also find joy. We often call this communion, which is all about relationships, intimacy, fellowship. There's, there's joy in that. Other traditions call it the Eucharist, which is this joyful thanksgiving. They come to the table in joyful thanksgiving. And so that's how we're going to come today, with rest and joy. In the parables, Jesus talked about two common elements, mustard seed and flour, and he gave them meaning. A man took some seed and planted it. A woman took some yeast and hid it in the dough. At the table, Jesus invites us to take common elements, bread and grape juice, and he gives them meaning. This is my body. This is my blood. I'm going to hand it off to Luke in the gym at this point who's going to lead you through communion. Uh, for those of you in this room, if you did not get communion elements when you came in and would like to participate with us, would you just raise your hand and the ushers will make sure that you get some. I have some down here at the front, please, down in the middle. Thank you. Put it up nice and high so they can see where you are. That'd be great. We're going to uh, participate together. I'm going to read some words from Scripture where Jesus inaugurates this meal with his disciples at an event that we call the Last Supper. We're going to pray together and we'll eat together. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to participate fully with us. And uh, um, that'll be great. We have one more up here if you can. Dan's on his way. Thank you, Daniel. All right. Let me read from Matthew's gospel. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, 
Take this and eat it, for this is my body. If you peel back that top layer, you should be able to get to the wafer underneath. If you need help, just ask your neighbor. They'll be glad to do that for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you that this little bit of bread that we hold in our hands, this wafer that reminds us of his body, communicates to us that you are all we need. You are the bread of life. You bring us life and wholeness through the broken body of Jesus. And so we come in rest and in joy to participate in this meal together. In Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, let's take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of Christ was broken for your joy and for your rest. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, Each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this cup that we hold in our hands, something that seems very small and insignificant in light of all the things that we're going to eat this week, and yet has great impact because it reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was shed for us so that our sins could be forgiven and so that we could be brought into your kingdom, into your family. I'm sure most of us who are following your son Jesus don't have to think very hard about the small seeds or the little bit of yeast that was introduced into our life that has brought us to this point today. And we recognize that it started with your son and it continues with your spirit. And so we say thank you to you for forgiveness and wholeness because of Jesus' blood. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's take, drink, Remember and believe that the blood of Jesus was shed for the complete forgiveness of your sin and your joy and your rest. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.